Well, a good morning to your real talkers, a good afternoon or even good evening, depending on when you're catching the show. We thank you for it. It's Ryan Jesperson here on this beautiful Tuesday morning. It is April 26th, and we're coming to you live from beautiful Jasper, Alberta. Uh, coming to you, as a matter of fact, from the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge, where I will be today and tomorrow. Very honored to participate in some discussion tonight at the community leaders camp. You remember we told you this a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was a few weeks ago now on our real talk round table. We talked about building community, fostering that sense. What kills community? What brings them back tonight? We're going to be talking about how community members communicate with one another. And in just a second, we have an opportunity to check in with a former Alberta government minister, uh, perhaps more relevant in the context of this conversation, the founder, the president and CEO of 13 Ways Incorporated, Doug Griffiths, you know him, the author of the best-selling 13 Ways to Kill Your Community. Well, Doug's back, and as a matter of fact, last night delivered the keynote on the 13 Pathways to Success. It's the follow-up message that everybody's going to be keen to hear about, and so we're going to check in with Doug, in just a couple of minutes. He's also on the property, by the way, but I just didn't bring enough microphones for us to hang out together. So he's <laughs> going to join us from his spot. Johnny Infamous, of course, John Hicks, the technical producer I'm of this show, alone. holding down the fort, steering the ship from our home studio in Edmonton, Alberta. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good. It's a little lonely in here, and I don't know how to make the coffee, so I miss you. Oh, you don't know how to make the... I know it's I one button, but I don't want to mess I, it up. I should have set you up for success. <laughs> that one's on me, John. We got a lot to talk about. I want to get in in a few minutes after we talk to Doug. Um, we're going to be talking to a professional engineer in about 20 minutes here on the show. And, and I'm looking forward to this with Matthew Oliver, who had a Twitter thread that caught our attention the other day. Uh, you know, engineers, professional engineers, I, I know them well, I feel. Uh, my grandfather was a proud engineer. I host a whole bunch of galas and award shows for engineers. And, and when one of them speaks out, when one of them takes an issue with something and publicly speaks out, it's a thing. And that's what Matthew Oliver has done, essentially suggesting that engineers, ventilation engineers in particular, are not getting the respect they deserve in public conversations, even in professional circles, doctors especially, about COVID mitigation measures, says it's not being taken seriously enough. We'll find out what he means. And then Chris Blattman, you know, Chris Blattman, the best-selling author, he's got a brand new book out, Why We Fight. Uh, the University of Chicago professor will join us for his insights into what's happening, not just with uh, Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. He wrote about it yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, but also other conflicts around the world. As a matter of fact, in the brand new book, there's one part that really caught my eye. He talks about Western Canada present day. He breaks it down. I mean, the list, and I'll ask him about this when Chris Blattman joins us in about 40 minutes, but the list of conflicts, he notes, Colombia, Syria, Chicago's West Side, Northern Ireland, or Northern Ireland, rather, and Canada's Prairie Provinces today. So I think that's going to be a great insight. Plus, the leading edge from our friends at Leading Edge Physio, a lot going on, and we'll get your takes on Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. First, Let's remind you that this show happens because we have amazing sponsors at Bitcoin Well. I know there's a lot of talk about cryptocurrency right now. It's in the news for obvious reasons. Once politicians pick up on things like cryptocurrency, let alone make it part of their platform, you know the public's going to have a whole bunch of questions. I'm never going to tell you to buy Bitcoin, but I will tell you if you have questions about it, if you want to try to make sense of what you're seeing around you, we recommend the Bitcoin Well team led by Benny. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now.
Here's Ryan Jesperson. I mentioned that uh, the Twitter purchase, Elon Musk, the Twitter purchase. I could probably come up with a better headline for a $44 billion acquisition, but pretty interesting to see the founder, the co-founder of Twitter this morning, uh, the former CEO, Jack Dorsey, talking about the deal. Have you seen this? I haven't seen he's, it yet. Johnny, he gets into it and and he and, and he and he's a big fan of the deal. As a matter of fact, really? he says that the idea and service is all that matters to him, right? He says, I love Twitter. Twitter's the closest thing we have to a global consciousness. The idea and service is all that matters to me. I'll do whatever it takes to protect both. Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It's been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the correct first step. He says, in principle, I don't believe anybody should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving the problem of it being a company, Elon is the singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. Okay, that's an endorsement from Jack Dorsey who kicked off this whole thing. I'm going to put our first guest on the spot and ask him how he feels about this. Doug Griffiths is on Twitter. You can follow him at Doug 13 Ways, a former Alberta government minister, a business leader. He's the founder, the president, and the CEO of 13 Ways Incorporated. Welcome to the show from... Well, we're probably 300 meters away from each other right now, but I appreciate you checking in from your suite. How are you doing? I'm it's doing great. Yeah, it's good to see. Yeah. You. Hey, so you're on Twitter. Are you, have you been paying attention to this whole Elon Musk acquisition and, and, and does it impact whether or not you're going to be on the social media site? Well, it's hard not to pay attention to it. It's it's that and Johnny Depp or everything in the news these yeah. days. So it's hard not to to watch it, but it won't. I don't really use Twitter for much of anything except work. And I, I mean, Mr. Dorsey's comments about it being a global consciousness. Let's just hope that global consciousness is not a serial killer. <laughs> I mean, I, let's hope it's more like, you know, good old Aunt May or something. And, and we, we, it pulls us together instead of rips us apart. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, you're, you're out. You did the keynote last night. Uh, do you find that after you speak, after you get this, I don't want to say get it out of the way, um, but there's always that kind of nervous excitement that comes with, with delivering a keynote, especially when you've got a bunch of engaged people there to take in what you have to say. What, the morning after, how do, you, how do you tell if your message landed? Uh, well, I mean, even last night after we, we, we were talking, because it's a small group, there's, there's about 35 people there, and uh, people were really excited about it. And, and uh, even some of the other presenters made some notes that they want to talk about too, so it connects it all together. So it was, it was great. I'm just... Uh, I'm really excited that we managed to pull all this together and that uh, the pandemic didn't shut us down. Yeah, no kidding. It's good to be back uh, talking to people. And of course, these are these are folks that are uh, that care about their communities. And I know I'm sure that the, a lot of people um, that are going to be listening and, and, and paying attention to what we're talking about were people that also had an interest in your book, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community. I want to ask you about 13 Pathways to Success. Obviously, I want to ask you about the current state of conservative politics in Alberta. You've been a government minister, minister of municipal. I mean, you, you, had, you had a huge, I mean, I remember some of the early interviews that you and I did. Um, you were almost literally knee deep in water the whole time, uh, managing crisis and Southern Alberta floods and big things. You've seen how the wheels of government turn. I'm sure you've had challenging conversations around the cabinet table. I want your assessment of, of conservative politics in Alberta right now, but for people that aren't familiar with, with the 13 ways you can kill your community, uh, the overarching theme here is basically how communities are either thriving or dying on the vine. 
Yeah, well, and and with thirteen ways to kill your community, it 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 even gets into the fact that that I mean, there are a lot of external factors that drive whether or not communities are successful or whether or not they're going to fail. Um, but we don't realize most of the time that it's our own approach to the problems, it's our own attitude that winds up sabotaging our success. So I. I hear people all the time say, well, you know, we're going to put it in our strategic plan. We're going to get more youth engaged. And then four years goes by and they pull the plan down off the shelf and they look at it and realize nobody did anything. And they all stare at each other and say, well, I thought you were going to do something and nothing changes. And, and not only that, in the meantime, they spent those four years saying, well, there's no hope and there's no future here. And young people need to go somewhere else in order to have the opportunities. And why would they want to set up a business here, invest here, or stay here? And they're the same people that want to to keep youth or give them a reason to come home. But then in the same breath, subconsciously, whether they realize they're doing it or not, um, they're sabotaging their own success by driving young people out. And that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, communities suffer. They don't adapt to change and they, they sabotage their own success. And so that's what we do. We help them change that perspective. I feel like I had a bit of a, maybe a bit of a case study. I'm not going to name any names, but, but on, on the drive out here from, from Edmonton to Jasper yesterday afternoon, yesterday evening and, and passing through or by different communities. And there's different factors at play, like proximity to the big urban centers or proximity to lakes or the, the cost of real estate or, or how local industry is thriving or not. I'm sure, but you can see communities that get it um, or that are at least following a model that appears to be working, evidenced by things like infrastructure improvements, and sometimes you're at the whim of government, don't you know, um, yeah. things like building out of, of, of new neighborhoods, and, and you can see the signs of a community that's thriving, or a community that, that has sort of a confidence or a swagger about it, and then unfortunately, you pass through or nearby other communities, and you just kind of look around and go, I wonder how much longer they're going to be able to roll like this. It just, it just doesn't at first glance. And maybe I'm the jerk that's just rolling through, but at first glance, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent convinced if I got an offer to move my family out to this community that I would do it. Yeah. I, I know that's what the, the book is about because I mean, number one, beautification, I mean, are, we're attracted to aesthetically pleasing things and there, there are communities that say, Oh, that's so superficial yet. You know, when you're driving by or driving through, that, that aesthetics, that first impression, lets people know whether or not you believe in yourself and whether you're going to invest in your own community. And, and, and people look at me and go, no, that's still superficial. But, but is it? Because if you're giving the impression you're dying, then you're going to die. It just, and that's why we, we've got to get over some of these myths that, that, that um, you know, everything is beyond our control. Um, and that's actually why I, I started this new presentation and working on a book, 13 Pathways to Success, because most communities can do something. They don't need to have a lake. They don't need to have a major industry. They just need to find the one thing that they're really good at and focus on being really good at it. Just, just like people. We're not all perfect, but we're all really good at something. How, do, how does a community determine or, or discern what it's really good at or, or, or where its strengths are at or, or where maybe the most potential lies? Like, is there one formula that if, that if you're, you know, in the middle of Saskatchewan or if, if you're a, a suburb of Toronto or if you're halfway around the world that you can follow or does it have to be kind of case or, or regionally specific? It's not even regionally specific. It is so nuanced that mm. um, there is no formula for it. And I, I emphasize that all the time because communities go through and do a strategic plan, you know, with a vision statement that reads like everybody else's and some values like, you know, integrity. I don't know what that has to do with strategy. And, 
my grandpa always used to say, anyone who tells you they're not a liar is a liar. Not, not because we're all liars, but because we project on others what, what we know about ourselves. That's all we really know. So what, why would you bother putting integrity in a strategic plan? Just live it. So real strategy is getting down to what makes you unique. And there was a, there's a community I often talk about in Ontario that we went to um, and they were, they were doing what everybody else says you're supposed to do and created a generic strategic plan. And when we went through and did an assessment of the community to really find what makes it unique, they had a, a significant Polish population and they, they discovered that a lot of those people moved to Toronto and then they moved out to this community, started their own businesses. And it was a connection back to Poland and the, the Eastern Poland, specifically where these communities were. And they, they attracted a bunch of new entrepreneurs from Poland and they, their entire main street had a rejuvenation. It was, it was a rebirth. So, it, I mean, it's not even about where you're from, um, the um, region specific or nuanced. It is really getting down to the heart and soul about what makes your community unique and then leveraging that. You would have obviously, I, I think, had an opportunity to glean much of your perspective uh, through your tenure as Alberta's Minister of Municipal Affairs under Premier Alison Redford at the time, about about 10 years ago now. Uh, now, there's a lot of uh, stuff that, that would probably, quite frankly, bore a lot of people with regards to how relationships work between the province and municipalities. And, and oftentimes provincial governments are trying to get the feds to kick in on big infrastructure projects, that kind of a thing. Um, it's also not insignificant in the context of relationships. And is it fair to suggest that the relationships between municipalities right now and the provincial government is more strained than it was a decade ago, which might feel like a lifetime ago for you when you were there doing the negotiating? I see evidence, uh, you know, one thing anecdotally, maybe cherry picking, I don't know, you know, Reeves, mayors from tried tested and true conservative heartland in our home province of Alberta. I see them speaking out against this provincial government. You didn't used to see that as much. What do you notice about it? Well, I mean, I've seen, you know, heads banging before, but you're right, Ryan. I mean, in, I, I would do work all across North America with communities and I have never seen a more tense relationship across North America than the one between the, the current provincial government and municipalities. And I, I think it's not just um, municipalities are used to being frustrated with the province downloading costs. They're used to the province making decisions and sometimes not consulting. But but the hypocrisy, uh, this is what I hear constantly, uh, saying, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, municipalities can decide that's what we're going to do because they didn't want to make their base angry as a province to then turn around and make their you know, say, oh, we're going to defend the base, so we're going to seize control of this, and we're going to tell municipalities what to do. It's, it's pure hypocrisy and opportunism, and that's what's frustrating them. What do you, uh, we've been picking different folks' brains on what they think is going to happen with uh, the Alberta Premier's leadership review, Jason Kenney's leadership review right now. I'm sure that you're paying attention to it. Where do you see this going? What are you noting about it? Sorry, I lost you there for a second. What oh, it's okay, question? Doug. Yeah, we've got you back. I was asking for your take on the leadership review. Depending on who you talk to, you know, he's he's going to win with 60 plus percent support, which in the context of leadership reviews isn't great, but I digress. Others are saying he's going to lose. Some are suggesting there could be a snap election. Uh, where do you see this going? What are you noticing about it as somebody that sat around a cabinet table before? Well, I, I would say that anything less than 80% is a loss. And obviously, you know, the current premier is pitching that, you know, oh, 60% is fine. I still won. Uh, other premiers have tried to do that with, you know, R uh, Ralph Klein got a lower than expected turnout and it led to him retiring too. So I, 
Um, all I can tell you for sure, Ryan, is that I'm not running and people can quit calling me and asking me because I'm not going back into politics. I've been through rehab. I'm recovered. I got a great life. I'm not going back. You sought the, you sought the leadership. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, 2011, 2012, right around that time, yeah, wasn't it? 2011. And, yeah. 2011. And uh, so, so you've been there. You've been in the trenches. You uh, were and remain. Uh, if I call you a politician, you might take issue with it. But you were a, po- <laughs> you were a popular politician, uh, you know, whether you like it or not and um and remain popular people you know hire you on the lecture circuit and that type of a thing i think because um if i can analyze you for a second doug uh, i think you're somebody that uh comes across as having um sincere and deep-seated values i think that it strikes people that you care about other folks and that you've not been and, and it takes some political skill and part of the skill is to come across like you're not utilizing it uh, so I'm not suggesting that you don't know how to politic, but you seem to have a good personal angle on it. Have you seen that change? Like, is that part of the reason why you have no interest in coming back is because the whole game has changed? Well, you know what? I think um, bluntly, when I first got elected, my uh, my dad looked at me and said, son, the only thing you're going to leave when you leave politics with is your your family name and its reputation, your personal name and brand as a person and your balls. <laughs> if you can get out with all three of those, that's great. And I feel like I got out of there, but you know what the, the challenge these days is that it's not, I used to go have beers with Brian Mason. We used to debate. We used to talk. We used to, and I, I liked him and I, I liked most everybody that was in there. And I think I like some of the opposition better than maybe some of my own colleagues at times, but mm. Now, you can't have a conversation and debate policy. Uh, Both sides are making the other one out to be evil as though they're trying to destroy the province or trying to destroy the country or trying to destroy the United States. Like this this hyper um, partisanship, uh, I think, is ripping us apart. And and so for me, uh, I said last night at the keynote that I don't I don't actually think the federal government can rebuild the nation. I don't think the provinces can rebuild the nation. If we really want to pull people back together and get rid of this angry uh, hyper-partisanship, we've got to go back to rebuilding communities one layer at a time. So I think I'm in the right spot. Do you think we can ever get back? I mean, I I, I want to believe that we can. Uh, it's why I'm fascinated. I'm not trying to sort of insert this Elon Musk and Twitter story into everything, but I do think it's relevant because if you look at I mean, I, I I was just scrolling last night in my entire timeline of people. I think I follow like 7,000 people on Twitter or something like that. And it feels like 75% of them are talking about this story, but they're coming at it from different angles, right? Some people are, ta- some people are celebrating it, like the free speech thing. They believe that Elon's going to bring free speech back to Twitter. And other people are saying, well, free speech, it was kind of like what make America great again. The slogan where, where some folks said, well, America wasn't so great in our experience, Maybe it was great in yours or your family's, but not in ours. And the same sort of a thing with regards to free speech. What does that mean? Or how do you define that? Or what direction will he take Twitter in? That Jack Dorsey endorsement, which I wanted to lead the show off with today, that's huge. And he's celebrating it. I'm sure that he made, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the deal. But still, I digress. Um, but but it, it says something. It's telling, isn't it? Because everybody is 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 indicating how they use Twitter and what they see Twitter as as a harbinger of, right? Or even as a metaphor of these days. And, and I'm not sure that the general population, the average person believes that this polarization can be dialed back. And that includes me. Well, I, I'm not saying that it, it I, I think it will get worse before it gets better. But yeah. the, I mean, after it gets worse and everything gets ripped apart, I mean, we're going to go back to our communities, which are the most important thing. And I, I, 
I don't get this free speech mantra. I don't hear very many people being shut down on Twitter. If there were, there'd be a lot fewer, you know, trolls out there. And and there's already been limitations on free speech. I mean, you you can go to jail if you go into a movie theater and yell fire and yeah. somebody gets trampled. But you can go online with no evidence and no medical conditioning and say that, oh, yeah, um, vaccines are dangerous. And, and you know, you can say spew all sorts of things to fire people up and make them angry and build conspiracy theories that will harm people. But somehow free speech is more important than that. We've, we've already established that free speech has limitations everywhere um, because you're not allowed to use it to harm other people. I mean, you go holler that the Holocaust didn't happen and I guarantee someone's going to charge you and you're going to go to jail. And that's a good thing. You yeah. shouldn't be able to say everything you want all the time. Or, you know, my grandpa would have summed it up best when he said, you have the right to say what you want. You also have the responsibility to say something intelligent or shut the hell up. <laughs> That's just an old world. I mean, all these, these, you know, folks that are like, no, you can't take away my rights. A lot of conservatives would have said, you have a responsibility too. let's grow up. Hmm. I like that responsibilities part of the rights and responsibilities discussion. Um, let me ask you this in closing. I'll let you go. I know you have a busy morning. Obviously, this this entire community leaders camp is is underway and 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 there's going to be some great brainstorming throughout the next couple of days. Uh, assuming with regards to the future of small C conservative politics in Alberta, a lot of people are saying, well, if Jason Kenney walks away from this, resigns, is defeated and like whatever the circumstance, however it works out, it sort of appears to be people treating it like Brian Jean is just the de facto leader. And if you look at who's making a lot of noise and who appears to be or is probably considering supporting Brian Jean in the outset, it's people that would typically be wild rosers. And it begs the obvious question, if the United Conservative Party just becomes the wild rose 2.0 party, then where do so-called small P, small C progressive conservatives, where do moderate conservatives, where do so-called centrists go? What does that look like? Do you believe, like some political scientists I've talked to, that Alberta is indeed a two-party province right now, that if you're not down with Brian Jean's UCP, then you just migrate over to the NDP? I don't believe everybody's going to do that. No, I don't think so either. I mean, I'm an Alberta party member. I still, uh, I'm supporting Barry Morishita. I think that there's a lot of um, former progressive conservatives that are in there. There's a lot of moderates in there. I, I think the philosophy there is that we want pragmatic solutions to, to real world problems. And I don't think the two party state um, has worked very well. I mean, it has caused greater and greater polarization um, in the United States to the point where, you know, Democrats and Republicans call each other evil and, and that's how they fundraise. And it's, it's, and meanwhile, solutions are in the middle. So I hope we're not a two party state and I'll continue to be an Alberta party member and fundraise for them and encourage others to do the same. We, we need um, modern solutions to real world problems, not ideology. You know, that we can't make the world fit into what we philosophically want to believe. We need to deal with real situations and the two, the two party state system on the, on the extremes um, are trying to make the world into something that it's not. And what we, what we need is to make sure Alberta's prosperous and successful. So we need moderation and good ideas. And that's usually found in the middle. How many times has Barry Marshita asked you to run as a candidate for the Alberta party? Well, I, a lot, <laughs> but he, <laughs> he's, he's quite relentless actually, but uh, yeah. I I've told him, no, I'll help with getting candidates and, 
stuff. Well, I might have said one time, a long time ago, when we were having a beer, that you know, if he really needed me to, I might consider it. But yeah, I I, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, well, yeah, the former minister of municipal affairs says, if you really need me, I'll be willing to do it. Well, what do you think, man? <laughs> well, I met yeah. Barry for a beer. I don't know what it was a week or two ago, and and um, the guy is putting on miles. Like you know that he is all over the place. I think actually, I like I'm not. I've been to every province or, or every town in this province, except for one. Um, and I think he's been to every single one now as president of uh, uh, AUMA or now, now AM. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, yeah. They like, he's been everywhere. He's just a, a common sense guy who, who listens a lot. And I, I think that's a great place to start. So I'm, what's the one Alberta town you've not been to? Um, I, I don't want to hurt their feelings. No, you so have to say, to... you have to say, it's Bowden, and I am a huge fan of the mayor and council, and it's right on Highway 2, but it is the only community in Alberta I have never actually been to yet. So I, I keep promising the mayor I'm going to make that up and stop in, but yeah, maybe he doesn't, uh, maybe he doesn't want me. I keep saying I'm going to cut you loose. We have our next guest in the bullpen ready to rock, but I have to ask you this question. You're an expert on community branding and marketing and community cohesiveness and community strategy. Um, if you were or when you swing by Bowdoin and sit down with their mayor, and I'm sure what's a great council, do you point out the obvious to them that everybody thinks it's just a prison town? Is that, is that a problem for Bowdoin? It obviously employs a ton of people. Is that a problem or is that a good thing? Um, it's it's neither here nor there. It, it It's what you're going to do with it and how you leverage it. So, um, you know, the first thing I would talk about is what are they known for? What do they want to be known for? And what do they have for assets? So I know right. the Bowdoin Penitentiary would be one of those assets uh, because it creates jobs. But but what else do they want to be known for? And uh, that's where we would start. Good stuff. That's Doug Griffiths, uh, president and CEO of 13 Ways Incorporated. Thanks for doing this, Doug. It's good to get you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. You remember we tried to talk to Doug. uh, It was a couple of weeks ago on that roundtable talking about building community. And I'm I'm trying to remember he was somewhere in North Carolina or something like that and and did his best to join us, but had a connection issue. And we vowed we would get him back. And so here he is uh, checking in live from the community leaders camp at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge, which is where we are as well, broadcasting live in just a second. I'm looking forward to checking in with a professional engineer who's essentially, and I'll let him put it in his words, but he's essentially saying that his profession's not getting enough respect when we talk about COVID mitigation measures. We're going to talk about ventilation and airborne aerosol and all the rest uh, from a guy who understands it and has had a a long career uh, in this field. But first, of course, we want to let you know that this show happens because we have the support of amazing sponsors like St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Now's a great time to take a look at your family's ride or what you're going to be heading into the summer with. Maybe you're pulling a boat. Maybe you hope to do a little camping. Uh, Maybe you just need more room for the golf clubs in the back. You won't find a better selection of the 2022 Jeep Grand Cherokee anywhere else than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They can uh, obviously combine their inventories, right? So if you're shopping at one dealership and you don't find that perfect fit, there's a very good chance they're going to be able to track it down for you. You can find them and browse online under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. It's also a great time of year to start thinking about your outdoor spaces. You know, you take a look at your front yard and you think, gosh, you know, I could stand to be more inspired. You take a look at your backyard and you, you think, man, this space could really be brought to life. That's what the team at Eden Landscaping has been doing for more than 20 years, still family owned 
Ask them about their new urban butterfly approach. They're eliminating the need for lawnmowers and helping out those pollinators. You know what I'm talking about. You want to see more bees in your yard? You want to see more native grasses? Check out Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you it's always blizzard season, including some of the special features out right now, including the very cherry chip blizzard, the Nestle drumstick with peanuts blizzard. That's the next one on my to-do list. And the cotton candy blizzard that Johnny and I both couldn't stop talking about the other day. <laughs> You'll find those at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Roads. Well, before we get to our next guest, I want to I tee up uh, a Twitter thread that he put out the other day, Matthew Oliver. And, and uh, let me introduce you, you know, I mean, let me sort of give you his credentials uh, first. He's a, he's a longtime engineer. As a matter of fact, he's been practicing engineering for, for more than 30 years, including the aerospace, computer, and microwave disciplines. He's got expertise in the regulation of the professions, uh, assessing legal and engineering causation and accident investigation. The guy's done it all. He's a veteran and a citizen of the Métis Nation. And, And here's what he tweeted just the other day. This is what caught our attention. He said, I've not seen a single engineer or aerosol scientist that's making asinine statements like stop wasting time on vaccines. We only need ventilation and filtration. I've seen multiple medical doctors and medical researchers arguing the reverse. Oliver goes on to say, engineers always, always take a layered and blended approach to dealing with risk in design and operation. It's our core. It's core to our training and philosophy of design. Fail-safe, layered defense, graceful degradation are all engineering concepts, degradation rather. He said, what I really believe is at work is a visceral reaction to other professionals challenging the hegemony of medicine and its presumption that it can speak to any subject with authority. I've seen this again and again. Infectious disease docs on media expounding on respirator use incorrectly. Medical doctors on MSNBC recommends using perfume to fit test N95s. This is a basic error of high school chemistry. Continues engineer Matthew Oliver. I've done a number of media encounters and my most common answer I don't know. That's outside my competence to comment. It's easy to defer and ethical too. professional engineer, Matthew Oliver, joining us live this morning. Thank you for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. Thank you. <laughs> what what I, I was saying is in the introduction to the show today, I said I've spent a lot of time around engineers, including my grandfather, and I've and I've moderated and hosted and emceed a lot of engineering events. And uh, I know a few things about engineers. Number one, they're very proud of their profession, as, as evidenced by the rings that some of them wear, the lapel pins, how they beam about the projects they've worked on. Another thing about engineers, though, is they're traditionally pretty measured. Uh, they're not out there kicking hornet's nests. They're not looking to pick fights with other professions, typically speaking. It's a pretty steady eddy type profession. What prompted you to speak out like you did? Yeah, I maybe open up just to be consistent in my messaging. I'm not actually a ventilation expert. I'm just a uh, aerospace electrical. So um, I won't be speaking with authority about ventilation. I have to say, I mean, it's been growing for two years, but the thing that actually prompted that little bit angry uh, thread was a, a virologist who I won't name, uh, who made a comment, uh, several comments, mocking aerosol scientists and uh, and ventilation engineers. Uh and setting up this uh, really false dichotomy saying, well, 
you know, they're saying it's uh, we don't need vaccines because we've got all this uh, engineering or uh, science that we can use to solve things. And nobody in, in that I've been discussing or I've seen online has made those assertions. Re engineers are always talking about layered defenses. And what we're always promoting is it's it's not uh, or but it's and vaccines, super vaccines, uh, super protection, but also the need for ventilation and for proper respiratory protection. Do you, in your assessment, I already know where this, this is journalism 101 fail on my part, because I, I think I'm asking a question to which I already know the answer. But do you think that we collectively have taken the engineering or even more specifically ventilation side, whatever you want to, however you want to approach this seriously enough when it comes to COVID mitigation? Uh, we, we, we've certainly pushed some measures very strongly, which I think both you and I would support things like vaccinations and other protocols. Uh, but what about on the engineering side? Things like HVAC. I don't see a lot of people talking about how they've, they've recently purchased a bunch of HEPA filters and they're changing where their kids study or where they live or where they work. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I don't think there's been the focus on uh, ventilation there needs to be. And uh, lots and lots of good research that talks about the collateral benefits of improved ventilation. Um, the Lancet Commission on COVID put out a really good summary study looking at the impact of improved ventilation on uh, students' performance on tests in, in classrooms. So reducing the concentration of CO2 in the air that students are breathing improves their academic performance. There's tons and tons of information supporting that. COVID has just made this really present and pressing right now because now we have a uh, potentially disabling illness, which is causing all of these uh, issues, which can be at least partly mitigated by improvements to ventilation uh, in uh, in public spaces and in private spaces. What would you like to I mean, what would what would represent a serious commitment to to potential mitigation measures from an engineering standpoint? What would you like to see uh, governments talk about funding? What would you like to see private enterprise start to take more seriously? I mean, what are you keeping an eye out for? I think we're heading towards a, a revolution in building codes uh, that deal with ventilation, but the building code cycle is not a fast one, and we're not going to see substantive changes uh, in that area for years, and then it's only going to impact the new uh, construction. It won't impact the built environment, all the existing buildings. What we really need is some measures put in place that are addressing the issue of indoor air quality written broadly, not just with COVID, uh, in the built environment. So what are we doing about the buildings that are occupied right now to make sure there's adequate uh, indoor air quality? And I, I always hate to go down that path, but in some jurisdictions, legislation is the tool they've been using for that. I think the other thing is, it's not too late. We, uh, in, in terms of setting public health policy, the advisory groups in most places in Canada carry a unitary voice from the uh, infection prevention and control disciplines in medicine, we really, really need to approach this as an interdisciplinary problem and to draw in the people who are actually experts, for example, occupational hygienists who are experts in uh, respiratory protection and controlling risks in the environment uh, and ventilation and filtration engineers who are experts in, uh, in mitigating those sorts of risks using uh, engineering solutions. In your career, through the course of your career, more than three decades, uh, Matthew, ha have you seen any other scenario like this? Does this remind you of anything where, where you were arguing for or even seeing the potential for an interdisciplinary approach where infectious disease docs or other medical professionals or others would be consulting with engineers on a, on a public health crisis or some other issue that was affecting society writ large? Sure. Water treatment. Um, uh, 
and uh, completely blew my mind. I, I didn't realize this, but as I was doing background research last year for some uh, papers underway, uh, that there, there actually is a discipline known as public health engineering. And reading into the history of uh, the CDC in the States, one of their early leaders was uh, an engineer. And there's actually a whole discipline which focuses on the use of engineering techniques to uh, mitigate uh, public health challenges. The reason we have water treatment is because of, uh, if you look back into not distant Canadian history, into the 1920s, typhoid and cholera outbreaks in cities like Edmonton and Toronto. And those were the things that uh, really we brought a lot of engineering expertise to bear to make sure that we had uh, pure and clean water sources for citizens so you could actually drink them without getting uh, without getting sick uh, going right back to uh, john snow you know the the uh, person who created modern epidemiology and the broad street street pump and finding uh, the causation to assess where the cholera outbreak in london was coming from so this uh, th this public health engineering discipline is an interdisciplinary one that mixes medicine and uh, engineering know-how in interdisciplinary teams involving both medical experts and engineering experts. So that's a fine example of, uh, of, of how that's worked in the past. Maybe one more example, uh, back in late 2020 at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, uh, they were, uh, you know, their staff were following all the infection control measures, but they were still having COVID outbreaks. Remember, this is pre-vaccines. And they didn't know what was going on, so they decided to partner with the local engineering department at their local university uh, brought them in to do some airflow studies in the hospital wards and what did they discover their assumption of well-ventilated uh, hospital rooms they actually discovered that net airflow was from the patient rooms out to the nursing stations where the nurses were sitting unmasked because they thought they were safe there and they changed the uh, setup of the ventilation system so that they would have more safety for staff and the infection rates dropped way off so a perfect example of how those interdisciplinary approaches can have immediate impact on people Matthew, just in closing, uh, I know that I'm about to say something pretty obvious here, but I, I was watching the news last night and I noticed that um, uh, I guess it sort of flew under my radar, no pun intended, but the United States has essentially lifted mask mandates on airplanes. Uh, and in Canada, public transit is sort of like one of the last, what do you want to call it, the bastions of the mask mandates. Um, and it sort of got me thinking, I'm, uh, I never really thought about air quality before, really. I mean, it's wild for me to think that in the up into the I don't know what early 1980s we're smoking cigarettes on airplanes. But but I thought, you know what, I don't even know. Um, and I'm kind of like middle of the road when it comes to where I'm wearing masks and where I'm not. I'm trying to do the right thing all the time. And also I'm, I'm sort of enjoying some easing back into normal. And, and I know that that might push some people's buttons. And then I welcome that robust discussion. But I thought, you know, one area or one place I think I'm still going to keep wearing masks is airplanes, because the more I think about it, the more I realize the big metal tube with 300 people in it is quite frankly, kind of disgusting. But when we think about our workplaces and our homes and even things like changing our furnace filters, I mean, COVID one lasting impact, I think will be that we didn't spend much time, at least I didn't thinking about the quality of the air that we're breathing 24 hours a day. Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, the great lessons learned out of the pandemic is there is going to be this renewed focus on indoor air quality and COVID's the presenting issue. But really, we're talking about something quite more broad, which is uh, particulate contamination inside uh, homes and workplaces. Um, I have an air filter that measures PM 2.5, the really fine particulates and discovered that when you're cooking, if you don't have the hood fan on, suddenly my PM 2.5 goes from one to three up to 700 to a thousand. So just the act of doing something simple you do every day can 
dramatically impact indoor air quality. But the fact that we're thinking about it now and monitoring it means that we always turn the, uh, the, the range hood fan on before we cook now to make sure we're not exposing ourselves to those particulates. So I agree with you. I think this is one of the benefits coming out of this will be a lasting focus on indoor air quality. Uh, Matthew Oliver, uh, a professional engineer for more than 35 years, chief regulatory officer of APEGA, the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta, deputy registrar, an expert in a whole bunch of fields. Appreciate your availability today, Matthew. Thanks for this. Thank you. A great conversation. Let us know what you think uh, about what you're hearing here on the show. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us an email. Have you made drastic or dramatic changes. Hey, so you see there, John Hicks, and he's busy in the studio. He's in our home studio in Edmonton. John, take you the hand that you're using to wave and just point to your left and you can show people that big cream colored unit, uh, the air filtration unit right beside your table, the big thing right by your knee there. That's that's a small addition or a small step that we took in our studio, but that thing can really move the air. Now, it doesn't prevent COVID. Nobody thinks that, but that was a small step we took when we said, you know what? This conversation about air quality is a good one that demands more of our attention. I don't think people are having it. What steps have you taken in your life uh, to address air quality concerns? And was it prompted by COVID-19? We'd love to hear your emails. We'll get to those in future shows. Uh, we got author Chris Blattman coming up in just a second. Uh, Why We Fight, his brand new book that everybody's talking about. He had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. We'll get into it uh, with a professor at the University of Chicago. Want to let you know, quick heads up, if you're tuning in from the province of Alberta, one of the 16 communities that has a Friesen Brothers, that there's a big day. There's a big day coming up tomorrow. And we want to make sure that you don't miss the boat on this one. You can find all the details at Friesen.com. It is National Prime Rib Day tomorrow. I am sounding the alarm. Hey, get some fresh horseradish, uh, some 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 beautifully, per, some just gravy, mashed potatoes. National Prime Rib Day. You can check out the details at Friesen.com. Alberta grown, Alberta owned for more than 65 years. Park Power wants your business and they want to compete for it right now. An opportunity for you to compare rates with internet, electricity, and natural gas online at parkpower.ca. Now, don't forget, when you take your business to Park Power across the province, your friendly local utilities provider, the promo code 2022 Dash Real Talk gets you $70 off your first bill. They're basically going to buy you dinner. 70 bucks off your first bill with the promo code 2022-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. And if you're signing up for Park Power and you're reading about that solar rebate buyback program they have, you're going to want to place a call to our friends at Kubi Energy or get your online quote, a free quote today at kubienergy.ca. Kubi has, of course, a whole bunch of information under the blog link on their website. I want you to check that out, including details on all these new programs you can tap into, incentives, rebates. Putting solar on your roof has never been more affordable, never been more reliable. It's never made more sense. I was talking to their CEO, Jake Kubisky, a while ago, and I, and I said to him, he probably doesn't want me to say this to you because I said, you know, different solar installs cost different amounts of money. I said, solar that would have cost 30 grand 10 years ago on the roof of a home, 30 grand, what would it cost right now? He goes, I don't know, eight, maybe seven with the right rebate. Costs are coming down. KubiEnergy.ca is where you can get your free quote today. Well, our next guest is uh, an authority on, on not just war, but how we get there. Chris Blattman is the Ramley E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago's Pearson Institute and Harris Public Policy. He's an economist and political scientist who studies violence, crime and underdevelopment. His most recent book is Why We Fight, 
the roots of war and the paths to peace. Chris, welcome to Real Talk and thanks for making time for us today. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How, how does somebody become an expert in, in the field of, of not just why we fight, but why conflicts, maybe not always bad until it leads to war? I mean, what, what sort of spurred your interest in this area of study? So in my case, it was by accident. I, uh, I'd been working in, on poverty alleviation in East Africa and uh, two con men stole my laptop found myself in an internet cafe waiting 10 minutes for an email to load. And I met a woman next to me who was working in a conflict in Northern Uganda, which was the country next door. And so I followed her there for uh, love and we've been married for 15 years. We've now been working uh, together on conflict for a very long time. Um, but when I was there, you know, I met people who, you know, the children had been abducted and conscripted, the government had pushed off their land. Uh, just, I, just some of the worst imaginable stories that I don't even like to repeat and and I, and I think that just made everything else I worked on sort of fade in importance. And, and I decided I, I just wanted to try to figure out why this was happening and how to stop it. Mm. I appreciate your publicist passing along a copy of the book ahead of time. And, and I had a chance to get into it. And one of the things that really jumped off the page to me, uh, maybe I wasn't expecting it, um, but you assert that we exaggerate how much we fight. You know, we're in a world full of conflict and we see evidence all around us. Uh, where do you see the exaggeration? What do you think prompts it? And, and, and how does that impact our, our dialogue or ultimately sometimes where this conflict goes? Right. I mean, like a doctor, we have to pay attention to the critically ill, but we also don't want doctors to remember to think that, that everybody in the world is, is sick and, there's the, and, and to forget that the normal state of, of humanity is health. So likewise, um, I don't want us to forget that most of the time think we're peaceful. The you know, two weeks into this invasion, and because it seems like a strange time to make this argument, but two weeks into this invasion of uh, of Ukraine by Russia, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan, and calm ensued. And people wrote articles about that, but most of us didn't notice them or read them. I myself only stumbled across it by accident. And and so this is happening all the time. You know, the other the other way to look at this is, you know, Putin's been trying to co-opt Ukraine for twenty years. He's tried every other means possible assassinations, dark money, propaganda, support for separatists. He did everything possible to avoid this costliest and worst of options. Now, eventually he used it, right? But he's, he worked so hard to avoid it for so long because it is really the worst of our options. You talk, uh, you wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, just yesterday, uh, April 25th. People can find it, the strategic logic of Russia's war on Ukraine. And you talk about how invasion is the product of miscalculation. And we've heard some people assert this, that that whether it was miscalculated or an underestimation or, or this remarkable resilience of, of the Ukrainian people, but but the product of miscalculation, what did Putin miscalculate in your assessment? So it's clear that he misjudged. Listen, my point is actually that when we, some people, when they say miscalculated, they said that this was some, he was isolated, he's overconfident, he underestimated the cost. And I think all of those things are true to, to an extent. But another way to think about this is actually just how one reacts under profound uncertainty, right? The fact, think about how many of these things were uncertain two or three months ago. The, the pluckiness and the bravery of Ukrainians, the Western unity on sanctions, uh, not to mention the capacities of the Russian military. And so war also becomes a gamble when it's possible to actually underestimate, not underestimate because you're wrong, you're biased, you're isolated, but actually get it wrong because of the fundamental uncertainty of the situation. And so that's just one of sort of three more strategic logics that don't 
demonize, listen, let's demonize Putin for his cold and calculated logic and incentives, not because we're going to underestimate him and misperceive him as some sort of befuddled, isolated, crazy person. Hmm. Did, did you happen to see the uh, former Canadian uh, federal minister and, and diplomat, the shot across the bow? Did you see Chris Alexander's criticism of your editorial in the Washington Post yesterday? I did. You know, we actually engaged and I think had a productive discussion. I yeah. think he was attributing to me an idea that somehow to say something is strategic is to sort of say it's acceptable and that we should mm -hmm. tolerate it. And that's not true, right? Like a criminal can be strategic, right? A criminal can sort of be self-interested. And actually something that's self-interested and calculating to me is actually more evil than someone who's deluded by ideology or by mistakes. And so I think, you know, but pe when people see strategic logic, they think, oh, this is permissible. And that's that's definitely not true. Yeah, he and for, for our audience members, people listening here on the podcast or watching on YouTube that didn't see Chris Alexander's tweet, former minister of citizenship and, and uh, immigration, and, and he was uh, uh, Canada's ambassador, minister uh, as well, the ambassador, though, to Afghanistan for, for a couple of years. I mean, he's familiar with conflict. And and he said that it was a wrongheaded analysis that illustrates the struggle in which so very many are still engaged in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and it's going to catch anybody's attention when a former Canadian federal minister starts characterizing American perspectives. People notice, right? He says uh, to explain the admiration and respect they wrongly accorded to Putin for so long. And this is something that, that I personally have been thinking a lot about is, is, as people talk about Vladimir Putin and how evil this invasion is on Ukraine and how how wrongheaded it is and how the international community needs to take more meaningful action. I think people are having these conversations on talk shows and in taxi cabs. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what, what's not lost on me is that Putin, you know, in the car racing world, they'd call him a bit of a sleeper. I mean, you know, he sure he is the Russian president and, and he's this powerful politician uh, maybe not as much as he thinks, but but really, the international community didn't take the threat of Putin seriously for years. Is it fair to say? I mean, I, I think even of the relationship he had with American President Donald Trump, who appeared gleeful every time that their paths crossed. Is, is that a fair assessment? You know, I think the there's been a long underestimation of how important Russia is to world affairs. Uh, mm. Even I mean, Trump's bizarre you know, appeal for, for Putin, I still I still don't understand fully. Um, but I, I actually think back to uh, presidential debates between Obama and Romney, when Romney named uh, Russia the, the number one strategic threat to the United States, and people laughed, and, and he was ridiculed afterwards, but it was very prescient. So, so I think, you know, some people have been aware of this, I think we maybe forgot uh, what kind of 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 threat this poses and that's i think that's not just true of, of americans i think this is this is true globally and, and now we're waking up to this i, I wanted to ask you and and uh there's a, a section in the book where you you know show some maps and things that people can kind of like or people can kind of understand the, the roots of conflict and 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 i love it because you know it it, it touches close to home where we are uh people get you you offer people an opportunity to understand more about uh colombia and we mm -hmm. think of conflict, we think, OK, Syria, sure. And then Chicago's West Side. Interesting, right? You're coming to us, the University of Chicago professor, of course, some great insight there, I'm sure. And then Northern Ireland. Wow. Right. Everybody think. And then there it is. Canada's prairie provinces today. And this is what will certainly grab the attention of much of our listening audience. And, and I'd love your analysis on it from from your perch. Sure. So I'm I'm actually an Ottawa raised, Eastern Ontario, you know, raised raised kid. So I could not talk about Canada even in a book on conflict. 
I was struck. Uh, it's it's kind of an amazing story. Like Canada's West is is more peaceful than America's West, just in terms of everyday kinds of violence, gun use, honor killings, and and even to this day. And so there's a question why, especially because they were settled by similar peoples, people of similar backgrounds. And one, you know, obviously there's lots of explanations for this. One of them that I think is really powerful is the state arrived around the same time or even before a lot of the settlers in Canada's West. And the state took a long time to arrive in, in, the, in the American West. And so people had to essentially, if, if there's a culture of honor and blood feuds and, and gun violence in the, the American West, it might be a little bit because of that need to sort of defend yourself rather than rely on authority to, to do so. And so somebody had this very clever idea where they took a bunch of, they looked at where these historical Mountie forts were in Western Canada. And they compared people, Canadians who lived nearby versus far away. And the ones who look further away from these historical forts, which by the way, no longer exist and haven't existed for a long time, were less violent then. Sorry, the ones who were further away were more violent then and are actually more violent now. And one way they find that out is they look at where hockey NHL hockey players are born. And the ones who happen to be born next closer to these forts that no longer exist and haven't existed for these decades for decades the ones that are closer are have fewer penalties and have less violence in the nhl and so it's just to go show that even in our own societies there's a lot of variation that's explained by the historical presence of of, of bodies like the mounties who help to tamp down violence that can have generational effects you must have been paying close attention as a an ottawa boy uh to the occupation and the truck convoy and the coots border blockade and and everything else there. And I think that the concerns a lot of people had were rooted around what appeared to be pretty obvious potential threats, people carrying hundreds or thousands of liters of gas in yep. jerry cans into areas that were, weren't exactly, uh, you know, being patrolled by police, or at least not as fulsomely as some people would have liked. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, and, and the and, and the cache of weapons as well, I think that the RCMP uh, infiltrated and seized at Coots in southern Alberta outside Lethbridge was a pretty big deal, too, because people think, what if, like, what could have been? Uh, from, from your perspective, relating to conflict. Uh, what were you observing? What were you keeping an eye out for? And, and looking back now, uh, some people still facing charges. What's your assessment of how that all played out? So let me point to one of the cases you mentioned, which is Northern Northern Ireland, where often the state response to this kind of, you know, because it's hard to know who's, who's, who's going to rough things up, who's, 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 who threw that firebomb, who threw that rock, and so they'd go and they, rather than being targeted, they'd go and they'd round up 30 boys from the, the area who may or may not have been related to this incident at all, beat them up, throw them in jail. Maybe somebody would get killed. And it was that kind of untargeted and, and that kind of untargeted violence that struck people as so unjust and led them to essentially get angry and fight back. And it led to these cycles of vengeance and retaliation where each side misunderstands the other. And whether it's the American FBI hyper-targeting uh, extreme right-wing militias and, 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 and terrorists, or whether it's the, 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 this very targeted approach that you've just described in Canada, uh, where it's not the rounding up of a bunch of innocent people and, and it's not the broad persecution, but it's really targeted, strikes me as the, exactly the right response. Also, like the, I think the Ottawa police got a lot of criticism for their tolerance. I think it's a really hard line to walk and actually not doing things that would stir up these feelings of anger and injustice and vengeance that give life to these movements is something that's really important to avoid. So, mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I wasn't inside any of those rooms, but I admire how Canadian and American law enforcement, when it at least comes to this specific kind of violence, because this isn't how American police, for example, react to all groups, right? And not in a discriminating way. Uh, I think uh, I think I think it's probably been the right strategy. Well, do you think it's I mean, people would say, imagine if the, you know, Coots border had been blockaded or the ambassador bridge between Windsor and Detroit or whatever had been blockaded by um, idle no more protesters or yeah. Black Lives Matter protesters and 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 how different that might have been. Right. Is that something that you ruminate on? It's a good question. You know, I what I, I guess maybe the 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 thing that all of these strike me as an example of is this sort of point I make in the book, which is most of the time we loathe in peace, right? And so nonviolent protests, even if both sides are armed, right? Which in some cases they are, the fact that that doesn't turn into fireworks and, and the cycles of violence is the norm. And it's another example of how most of the time we don't fight. Um, as for like, what is the right way if you're a police chief to deal with someone who's blocking a bridge, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, you know, right-wing extremists or anti-vaxxers or whatever, like that's an almost unwinnable situation, right? Yeah. And so you just have to try not to actually let it spin out of control. You also talk about it. We were talking to Chris Blattman. Uh, if you're just joining us, a professor uh, out of Chicago, the author of uh, a brand new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. To be fair, you also talk about why we don't fight. And this is something that I wonder, I mean, is this something that, that people can uh, apply to like the family dinner table all the way up to international diplomacy Are this sort of these common threads that you've identified? I do. You know, I, I hesitate to drive things down into the family dinner table and to a lot you know a lot of my day job is working with individual violent offenders ex-rebels gang members and so forth there's a lot of commonalities i think people make passions and our emotions and our hot reactive cells drive a lot of individual violence and i and that's less true that's a lot less true in in groups even small groups big groups and so the, you know i i stay away from that cuz i don't think that's driving a lot of international war uh, but we can learn a lot some of the strategic principles i talk about the role of uncertainty, uh, for example, which I, I, I mentioned earlier, I think actually plays a really under undervalued role in understanding a lot of interpersonal conflict. Chris Blattman, author of Why We Fight, uh, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. You can now buy it anywhere you find great books. Chris, thanks for making time for us. We really appreciate the perspective today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, I encourage you to check that book out. A lot of people are talking about it and and uh, pretty interesting. I saw that, uh, by the way, the Clooney Foundation tweeting today. Yeah, that Clooney, George Clooney tweeting today, an endorsement of the book uh, by Blattman. The book chronicles how George and co-founder John Prendergast decided to fight for justice that from the Clooney Foundation. So it's a book that's that's uh, certainly tapped into helping people understand what what drives involvement, what drives advocacy, what drives and I mean, even all the way up to the to the highest levels right now, of course, in the context. And we mentioned Chris's piece in The Wall Street Journal, the context of Russia's attack, Russia's war in Ukraine. Th this stuff starts to make sense. But I love that he brings it back home. And what a fascinating study into Canada's prairie provinces and and, and the association of where forts were to how often or how violent NHL hockey players become coming out of those communities. Isn't this the type, I and mean, this is the type of stuff that really catches my attention. And I, I truly recommend the book. It's a good one. Uh, you can learn more on his website at chrisblattman.com. Every Tuesday, our friends at Leading Edge Physio give us 
an opportunity to, to take a look at a group or a person or an entity that's restoring faith in humanity, that's doing something innovative, that's changing the game. We call it the leading edge. And in this week's edition of The Leading Edge, we focus on the launch, and we celebrate it, the Distinguished Visiting Artist in Country Music program at McEwen University. Just last week, they kicked it off with a big fundraising gala. They called it Country in the Heart of the City. I love it. Now, here's where the innovation comes in. The program is the very first university program of its kind in the entire country. Now, there's one other on planet Earth, and that's in Edmonton's sister city of Nashville, Tennessee. That's where country music, I don't have to tell you about the connection at Belmont University. This program at McEwen will host workshops like songwriting and, and master classes, lectures, public performances with guest artists. You know, they're going to have some big names there. Managers, producers, writers, all sharing their knowledge and talent with the local music students. It offers young aspiring artists the tools to understand the industry, to expand their knowledge as they pursue a career in country music. Uh, that fundraising gala last week included a, a dinner, a performance by country stars Brett Kissel, Michelle Wright led the evening as well with a beautiful uh, performance of Whiskey and Waylon. A Leading Edge Physio is a proud sponsor of the fundraising event, and they're excited to be contributing to this new groundbreaking program that's bringing communities together to help local aspiring artists. Uh, the Leading Edge is presented by Leading Edge Physio. Life shouldn't hurt. So it's official. I mean, and unless something happens, uh, yeah, I mean, it could with some form of, uh, you know, regulatory approval or something doesn't get passed. I mean, there's there's still a couple of things and I'm not the expert on it. I just know what I'm reading from the experts online is everybody tries to uh, analyze and make sense of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, the world's richest man, dropping 44 Bs. That's right. 44 billion to Ugh. purchase uh, Twitter. He will own it, Johnny, privately. Uh, and he uh, basically at, at more than 50 bucks a share, I'm sure made a lot of people rich, but Elon Musk now will own Twitter moving forward. And I think uh, people are trying to make sense of, of what this looks like for them. Did you notice, did you happen to notice I don't pay too much attention to, to my to my followers on Twitter. In, in other words, like if they went up 10 or down 10 or up 30 or down 30, I don't think I'd notice. But yesterday dropped a couple hundred. Yeah. You notice when you drop a couple hundred. And at first I thought, what did I do? What did I say? A couple hundred. And then I realized that maybe it's people making good on their vow to leave. I if this sale goes through. Yeah, I saw some posts of people saying, uh, basically, I'm leaving. And then I, I don't have the biggest following as you, but yeah, I lost about 49 or 50. I counted them last night, uh, followers. And then I saw some articles on, you know, some big names. Uh, well, not huge names, but, you know, big name people on Twitter and actors and actresses who are kind of saying, you know, if I'm not off now, I'm going to be off soon. So. Yeah. Did you see uh, this is pretty interesting. Um, she's she's I mean, CBC News chief political correspondent uh, Rosemary Barton says that she's out on wow. Twitter, which is which is it's pretty interesting just considering how Twitter is used 100%. in in the news industry and how her 
Um, I mean, there's a big promotion engine behind Rosie and behind the shows that she hosts. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for her to eliminate that from sharing her content, from gleaning. I mean, we use Twitter uh, to understand where people are at, how people feel about our content, who they'd like to hear on the show, to reach out to people to come on the show. 100%. Um, and, and I thought that that was a pretty big step uh, in an interesting direction from Rosemary Barton. That's just one example. We asked you real talkers yesterday, an unofficial unscientific Twitter poll. How will Elon Musk's pending purchase of Twitter affect your use of, <laughs> or your perception of the social network. And I appreciate the 1,724 people that voted, uh, Johnny, the numbers held true I saw. Uh, about 57% said, I'm not really sure. Like, mm -hmm. which I would, I think also doubles answer is like, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, 29.8, we'll call it 30% said gross. I'm out. So one in three, um, I'll believe it when I see it, but yeah. yesterday was interesting. And then 13% said, I love it. It's great news. And as we let off the top of the show today, that would include uh, Jack Dorsey, the founder, the co-founder of Twitter and, and the former CEO. So, but is it really going to make or break Twitter? I, I don't think so. Well, I, I mean, I've been reading some experts that are saying that they don't think that this can. And listen, Elon Musk has has been I, I mean, you know, regardless of how you feel about him, some people, had, uh, you know, think that he's uh, incredible. Other people can't stand him. Mm -hmm. Some people are kind of blah, which is oftentimes the case with, with real innovators that have a tendency to be quite polarizing. Um, but I've seen some experts suggest that they don't think that maybe Twitter's revenue model can, can be squeezed anymore to really maximize more profit or more revenue out of Twitter. Yeah. Um, others are saying that the sale is essentially an indictment of Twitter's current executive leadership, saying that they failed on hitting revenue targets. Um, I, I don't know. I'm sure that when, when you're a billionaire like Elon Musk, <laughs> when you're the richest person on planet Earth, there's obviously there's there's got to be some financial relevance to any acquisition you make, but you get the sense, at least what he says, public facing, what he says out loud, that this is more a purchase on principle than it is out of interest of profit. I it mean, no, he's not, like not going to say no to profit. You know what I mean? Seems like a flex. And I'm wondering, like, you know, he had that big thing with the UN where he said, you know, send me a proposal and I'll try to, I'll try to, I think, he, he was going to donate $6 billion, and then I think he ended up doing like five point seven secretly. I'm not sure if it was to the UN, but a big uh, donation. But, you know, he can't fund world hunger, but he can buy it, it, this app to just it, it seems like I don't know. It seems like a flex, like he's just doing it for show. Doing it because he can. I don't think I've he's going to improve the app. I don't think he's going to be in the rooms trying to, you know, in the meetings trying to say, how can we get this better? How can we make more money? It's just. It's a tag. It's a it's a name bar under him, right? He can add to his yeah. status. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're the, you're the owner of Twitter, Tesla, and SpaceX. Um, <laughs> right. That's not that's not a bad top and three. Forty billion. Like, what is he worth? Two, almost three hundred. So, I mean, I think people said it was. What was it yesterday? It was about twenty percent of his net worth. Yeah. Um, so you, you you imagine dropping forty four billion and having eighty percent of your net worth still <laughs> right? left. Like, if I dropped forty four hundred, I'd probably have to start checking my online banking. Um, <laughs> Simu Liu uh, was on the record yesterday saying, and 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 it was liked a whole bunch of times, like one hundred thirty thousand times. It was was there nothing better to do with forty four billion dollars? Uh, I've seen a lot of people talking about like what forty four billion dollars could do. Um, I do think like real talk, that's a bit of a strange way to to analyze a business deal. Mm. Like, look what all that money could go to. Yeah, but that's not we're not you know, you don't talk about business acquisitions and charitable donations at the same time. But 
But when it's a billionaire that has more money than God that could in one fell swoop probably solve problems like malaria killing hundreds yeah. of children every single day in Africa, which is a very real and solvable problem. And he's from right? South Africa, right? So. Yeah, yeah, family there. is. He, was yeah. he born there? He was, was born right? there. Yeah, because you mentioned on the show, uh, like, is Twitter? And somebody just commented this on the live chat: Is Twitter a springboard for president now? Because Donald Trump utilized it, right? And so I went and looked, and I saw he was born in South Africa, so he can't, he can't run. Well, and plus, uh, The Rock is going to be the next president. <laughs> That's so what's your everybody bet, talking? Eh? That's your. What's everybody talking about? I think it's. I, uh, if Dwayne Johnson ran for president, I don't know. I don't know if he wants to do that. But I he he's is there a more likable celebrity? Like I'm talking mainstream likable. I'm not saying, you know, if you're listening to this podcast right now that he's your automatic favorite, but Ryan Reynolds. Any yeah. Oh, actually, you might be right. Can you imagine Ryan Reynolds is prime minister and, and Dwayne Johnson is president. Can you I feel like I, the world would just be calm with Ryan there and it'd be funny and lighthearted. And I just wake yeah. up every morning and be like, I can't wait to see what he's gonna say today. I can't wait. I'd love to see Dwayne Johnson walking into the boardroom to meet with Vladimir Putin. That would yeah. be an interesting one. Hey, just shoulders that can't him. even fit through the door. But you talk about Donald Trump. That's another question that people are wondering. And, and Trump is kind of the ultimate example. But we talked about like Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday, a, a congresswoman uh, out of, I think, Georgia. Right. And and mm. uh, and others that have been banned on Twitter, uh, like the prominent ones, not not trolls and sock accounts and, and people that are abusing, you know, with three followers, abusing other Twitter users. But Donald Trump to be banned from Twitter uh, for essentially what I think is is assessed or assumed to be his role in stoking the flames of and essentially manifesting that January 6th insurrection in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Now, he was asked about it yesterday. I think it was Fox News that got the interview, uh, whether or not he would come back if, if Elon lifted his ban. And Trump said he's done with Twitter. Uh, so, but you know, believe it or not, I don't know. He's got his own social network and he's got yeah. his own involvements. Uh, with regards to how he's dialoguing or how he's talking to his supporters. But I think it would send an interesting message. Twitter stock was up about 4%, 4.5% yesterday yeah. on the news that Elon Musk was buying it, which it's always interesting to see how the stock market responds. I wonder what it would do if Donald Trump came back. I don't know. And we'll is, have to see. is Elon going to try, like you said, try to utilize more money? Because you said like the, 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 the blueprint they got right now, they're kind of maximized. But so what does that mean? More ads? And more, uh, more. Yeah. they call it free speech, but it's going to be, yeah, you know what it's going to be. It's going to be a stream of, well, can we, I guess we can say it on the air. Diarrhea. Yes. No, yeah, yeah you can say <laughs> it. Be, I, I thought it was going to be way, I mean, a stream is, is a little graphic, Johnny. It's already um, bad on Twitter is what I'm saying. I don't think it's going to get better. Yeah, how about this from Jill on the live chat says, do folks remember the early days of Facebook, like porn and rape jokes, yeah. and jokes about domestic violence? Um, and here's where Jill hits the nail on the head. Uh, she says advertisers didn't want to see their ads up next to that content. And if Twitter becomes a cesspool, uh, they're going to lose it. They'll lose revenue. And, and she's right. We talked about that a little bit yesterday, uh, saying that, you know, you have to look at the culture of Twitter. Mm. Now, I don't know. You know, people will say that Twitter had sort of leans a little bit left and, and tends to this is, is some of the assertions I've seen. This is not my personal opinion necessarily, but that Twitter is more apt to censor conservative voices or right wing voices. Um, 
if that is the case, it'll be interesting to see how that factors into Elon Musk's ownership. And maybe, I mean, is there a corporate overhaul coming? Is there, is there a cultural overhaul coming at Twitter? That's a big undertaking. It's different than, you know, you, you, you buy Larry's plumbing um, in beautiful Bowdoin, Alberta. And, uh, and then, and then you realize that the culture at that plumbing shop needs to be improved. And so you say to the seven employees, here are the changes we're going to make to turn around Twitter and to see how that manifests itself on the social media site and what the revenue implications are. And especially if you're doing it on a whim, uh, seems to me to be a pretty big undertaking with, with potentially huge effects. And so enormous. we'll only be able to evaluate this with the uh, benefit of time, with the benefit of hindsight. But I'll be curious to see how many more followers everybody bleeds as maybe more and more people say bye-bye. And we're saying all this, but... Right. Wouldn't it be funny if he just got on there and all he did was like change the font? That's it. <laughs> it doesn't even, like, and Twitter it's, just goes insane. Like, no, it, it, it starts to look like Collapse. any material put out by people who do their own graphic design where there's like six different fonts on the page. Yeah. It's like you, you sign into Twitter and it's all in comic sans solar system um, background gradient. Yeah, I, I never know. <laughs> Um, I was thinking Wesley Lowry was tweeting. It would be an interesting time for Twitter employees to unionize. Uh, sure would. I mean, I think that's kind of a bit of a blast at Amazon, too, from Wesley Lowry. That was a good one. Um, Eve Six on Twitter said Elon Musk is an inventor. He invented a new definition of the word inventor, which is a guy that buys things and says he invented them, which is pretty funny. Um, Joshua Potash on Twitter said one example that really summarizes Elon Musk is when he said he'd fix all the lead pipes in Flint, Michigan. And instead, he just donated water filters to 12 schools. Yeah, uh, there's a blast there. And I love this one from Dentist Bob. He's a local follow for us. I've never met him personally. I have to. This guy's hilarious. If you guys don't follow Retired Dent on Twitter, follow Dentist Bob. He says, quote, now you can quit Twitter and get a freaking life. My wife, after she found out what Elon Musk did. So I thought that was good from <laughs> Dentist Bob. Dentist Bob has like. His GAF meter after retiring from dentistry is just off the charts, and he's tweeting everything these days. He's human laughing uh, yeah. gas. Yeah, if he was, he isn't. He's huffing laughing gas. That's got to be what it is. All right. Hey, listen, we have these conversations because we have partners like Infinity Healthcare that show up every month truly caring about community. They care about community dialogue. And on a personal level, Infinity cares about your family's caregiving situation. They know that more and more Albertans are qualifying as that sandwich generation. You're doing your best to looking after your parents. They want to age in place. You're trying to look after your kids too. So there's several things that really matter. Consistency of care and affordability of care. Infinity Healthcare works with you in some circumstances tirelessly to find a perfect fit for the home care solution your family seeks. If you want to make sure your mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, aunt or uncle, sibling or otherwise, is taking their medication, getting the food they need, you want them to be checked in on by someone they're comfortable with, we recommend Infinity Healthcare. You can find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. If you're lucky enough to be heading out of town, I saw some great conversation about masks on planes in our live chat. That's a conversation we'll have to pick up in days to come. If you're heading out of town on an airplane and you want to take off all the boxes, you want to make nothing but smart decisions as part of that travel, 
Jet Set Parking should be your number one move at jetsetparking.com. You can book your spot 24 hours in advance all the way through for travel to the end of 2022. You can save by booking online. The promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com gets you parking for $7 a day. Nothing like coming back from a week away and owing less than 50 bucks, my friend. Seven bucks a day, the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. And don't forget, Northwest Fest is back. Canada's longest running documentary film festival in person. Nothing but the truth. It kicks off May 5th and runs through May 15th. You can find out your ticket scenario. You can find out how you can get involved. You can learn more about the latest news about some of the documentaries being featured there by visiting their website, northwestfest.ca. Consider attending closing night, May 14th, on the Fringe, celebrating Canada's love affair with Fringe festivals, spending one full summer on the circuit, including Edmonton's world-renowned Fringe. That's the closing night film on the Fred, uh, on the Fringe, May 14th, at northwestfest.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to pick up on a lot of the stories right now that are capturing the world's attention. And a lot of that is driven by you. When you let us know how you're feeling about content here on the show, when you let us know about what you'd like to hear on the show, but you're not, it drives our process. Engagement is key to real talk. You know that. So hit us up today on Twitter. Hit us up at talk at ryanjesperson.com. And we'll see you again live from Jasper Wednesday morning. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Sterlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. Oh, 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 oh,